I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, last week I mentioned that Advent is technically about the second Advent, and that creates a sense of solidarity for us with the people 21 centuries ago who were expecting the first Advent. And whenever we talk about the second Advent or the second coming of Christ, there is sort of uh, a pendulum that we... Um, that we risk being on either side of. One is to over-sensationalize the second coming of Christ by looking at the politics of our day and trying to guess what prophecies mean what and date predicting and, you know, Russia and China and, you know, and, you know, and, and we've, if you've been around a while, you, you've seen people look foolish doing that because every 10 or 15 years the political landscape changes anyway. So you can't do that. Uh, the other side of the pendulum is to not care much about the second coming of Christ, is to not think about it, not talk about it, and just not care to the point where we're sort of apathetic about this future reality. And I, this week I wondered if it has much more to do with where we are in our lives. If life is pretty good, you probably don't think about the second coming of Christ much and you probably don't want it much because life's good and why would you, right? Things are just sort of humming along and sailing along and, uh, you know, you, you do not want it to happen anytime soon because, well, you're enjoying things. But if your life is broken and there are things that are beyond repair, and they grieve you deeply. And no matter how much you've prayed or you've tried to fix things, you cannot. And you go to bed with those pains and you wake up with that burden. You want the Lord's return. You want to hasten it. You want the Lord to come back soon because you know that until he returns, this world will never be what it was intended to be. No matter how advanced our society becomes, how technological we become, and those are good things, but the world will never be what it was intended to be until the Lord returns. Our text this morning is a passage of scripture where Jesus himself describes in detail what his return will look like and what his judgment will look like in detail. We often think, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, actually we do. If we pay attention to Jesus' words, he has given us the picture of what will happen when Jesus returns. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31 these are the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory 
and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Father God, now we pray for the unction of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this powerful passage. Jesus' own words about what his return will look like and what the judgment will be, O oh God. Quicken our hearts through the Holy Spirit and may, our, may we be convicted and convinced by its truth. Leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray. Well, this has to be one of my favorite all-time statements from Scripture. Come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. It is a sweet way that Jesus speaks to those that belong to him, to those that he has redeemed. And it comes from, perhaps, this most detailed account of what will happen on the day of judgment. Jesus will separate mankind like a shepherd separates sheep and goats. It says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people. We're not talking about farm animals, we're talking about people. One from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
Some images or pictures or illustrations in Scripture are familiar to us, and some are not. This one is not. We don't really understand why shepherds separate sheep from goats. But for Jesus' first century hearers, it would have been a familiar picture to them. Sheep and goats grazed together by day. You can see the picture. The horned ones are the goats. They fed together often during the day, but at night they separated them because the goats did not have the, the wool covering, and they got cold, and so you had to bring the goats inside. And sheep were more docile and more valuable than goats. So the meaning is plain, Jesus is trying to communicate. Shepherds value sheep more than they value goats. The good shepherd invited the sheep to his right side, which was the side of favor in antiquity. It's a motif in the ancient Near East, sit at my right side, sit at my right hand, put the sheep on my right hand and the goats on the left. It's a picture of judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all of his angels with him, it is a heavenly picture of a king coming with an army who rides into a place with all of his heavenly host, host of heaven, all of his angels. He's not coming alone. He's coming with all of his angels. And he will sit, it says, on his glorious throne. Humanity is like this image. We're all mixed together, we're all jumbled together. We live together, we work together. We go to school together. But one day, the shepherd will separate the sheep from the goats. And according to Jesus' words, here in Matthew, will be separated based on six acts of service, according to Jesus' words here. In fact, for many of us, we may not always know what to do with this passage of Scripture because we believe in justification by faith, alone by grace, alone in Christ, alone as we should. But these words here, they provoke us to think deeper about what it means to follow Christ. Six acts of service to meet the needs of those in hunger or those who thirst. Welcome a stranger to clothe the naked, care for the sick, visit the imprisoned. When I was hungry, he says, you gave me food. He says this to the righteous. And you gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous seem surprised by this. Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you with, or, or sick and care for you? 
or imprisoned. And he says, truly, as you did it to one of these, the least of these, brother, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it to me. That behind the face of that person in need, it was me. There is a, a popular story by Disney of Beauty and the Beast, and I saw something recently about uh, folklore and about a lot of the modern fairy tales, especially from Disney, are sort of an amalgam of many ancient folk tales from across different cultures that they have sort of unified into one. And one of them is Beauty and the Beast. And if you remember the story, is it's, there's a prince in a, a castle and an old sort of decrepit woman comes to the door begging for food or a handout and he turns her away. And immediately she turns into a beautiful enchantress. And when he realizes that this was no old decrepit woman, it was this beautiful enchantress, she puts a spell on him. She essentially curses him. And I don't know if the story was inspired by this passage. It may have been the original folktale. But you get the idea that she wanted to see if he would treat someone who was lowly and not beautiful, maybe had nothing to offer him, the same way he would treat someone who he respected or thought was beautiful. And he failed the test and was turned into a beast. And there is something about that story that communicates to us that in our humanness, when we are operating the way God made us to operate, we show grace and love and care to the least of these. But when we don't, our humanness erodes and we become bestial, like a beast, like an animal. Jesus speaks to the goats, those that did not care for him, and he says that those who did not meet these areas of need, that they're cursed because they failed to perform these acts. They're cursed. Like the prince who turned away the old decrepit woman at the door. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, as a quick side note, uh, I know that there are people who don't believe in hell or eternal punishment, but, you know, if we're to take Jesus at his word, if we're just to, on, at face value, believe that the Son of God is speaking truth to us and that he is giving to us, even in a parable, things that are true, the reality of eternal punishment for the wicked is certain. It's an idea that is found in many places in Scripture, but it's right from Jesus' mouth. You're cursed. Depart from me into the eternal fire, which was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. In another place, it says that hell has enlarged itself. It was not originally prepared or made for people, but it has enlarged itself. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they also will answer. They're just as surprised. Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick and in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now think of this for a moment. This is the final judgment of the world, and both groups which comprise all of humanity they're split right down the middle, I suppose. They're both surprised. They're both surprised. They're, they're not that, they don't seem to be surprised that they're being judged, but they're surprised about the evidence. They're confused about the evidence. The confusion of the sheep is there. They say, you know, um, you know, Lord, when did we? When did we see you and serve you? And the goats are also confused. They're thinking the same in reverse. When would we have ever refused you? They couldn't think of an instance. Well, I turned an old decrepit woman away at my door, but I didn't turn Jesus away. That's the way the mind works. I didn't help a person in need, but that wasn't Jesus, so I'm in the clear. To the sheep, he says, you fed me, you offered me drink, you welcomed me, you clothed me, you cared for me, you visited me. I know I've got some repetition here, it's on purpose, so I want us to see this. And to the goats, he says, you gave me no food, you did not offer me drink, you did not welcome me, you did not clothe me, you did not care for me, and you didn't visit me. We're busy people, aren't we? And we can't help everybody. One of the things about social media is that you either are faced with the overwhelming burden of caring about everything in the world or caring about nothing. And it's hard. You see some cause, well, I like this, you know, I like this cause, these starving people in a foreign continent. I liked it. I, I'm, I'm doing my part. Or it overwhelms you and you just... And clearly we are not meant to care about 7.5 billion people in particular. You cannot. Jesus himself was only close to three people. Right? Of all the 12 apostles, he really only spent a whole lot of time praying and discipling in detail, you know, Peter, James, and John. So we have limitations as people. But there are times when we can help. And if we're in that mode of, I can't help everybody, therefore I'm going to help no one, we also fall into a ditch. If you look at the needs, hunger, thirst, being a stranger, being naked, sick, or in prison, it encompasses you know, just basic human needs of 
food, clothing, and companionship, right? And clearly, God cares that our theology moves from the head to the heart to the hands. They teach you that in seminary. It's helpful. What we believe about God has to, at some point, you know, gravity has to move it down into here. Because it, unless it gets here, it won't get here. Right? I love thinking about God. But some people are better about feeling and doing. It comes natural for them. For those of us who are deep thinkers, we love ideas, we love the abstract, it's work for us. And so my question is, has your theology moved from your head to your heart? Has it moved from your heart to your hands? Or is it all theoretical? I think this is the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. They had absolutized their theology. They didn't have a heart anymore. They were ice cold. They didn't have a heart. It was all ideas about God. They had absolutized these ideas, but it had cut them off from feeling love and compassion for their neighbor. And story after story and parable after parable and teaching after teaching and confrontation after confrontation bear out Jesus' frustration and critique of the Pharisees. Now here's something interesting. Jesus is actually closest to the Pharisees in the ancient world in terms of his theology and identification. In other words, if Jesus was not the son of God, he'd probably be a Pharisee. So the Pharisees, before Jesus came on the scene, they were the good guys. And it makes sense that Jesus' strongest critique were people who were theologically closest to him. You know, he's not bashing on Persians or pagans or the Greeks. They're, they're way off base. But the Pharisees are close. They're right there. It was a spiritual renewal movement. That's what Phariseeism was. They were people who held in high esteem the law of God, the covenant of God, and they deeply wanted to see people worship the one true God of Scripture. But what happened was their theology stayed just up here. It stayed in their head. They couldn't see past the things they believed to recognize that there were times where you had to think biblically, or sometimes we could say think outside the box. It doesn't mean violate Scripture, but it means that to recognize that often human need trumps regulations and rules. Perfect example of this is when Jesus and his disciples are hungry on the Sabbath walking through the wheat field and they, you know, they pluck some grains of wheat and they, they shuck the husk in their hand and they're eating. The Pharisees say, You've, you violated the Sabbath. And Jesus says, haven't you ever read what David and his disciples, his, his soldiers did when they went into the tabernacle and ate the bread that was only lawful for the priests to eat because they were hungry? And the point is that human need trumps regulations when there is real human need. Now that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Wait a minute, what are you saying? It means that God cares more about people than anything. God cares, the whole purpose of his commandments, the whole purpose of the scriptures, the whole purpose of the law is to get us thinking and feeling and acting rightly about him and each other, and each other. 
Here's how we typically deal with these areas of need, okay? For the hungry, we donate food to pantries, like food pantries, right? For the thirsty, we support clean water projects in third world countries. To the stranger or the alien, we give to refugee organizations. For the naked, we take our clothes to Goodwill. For the sick, we give to St. Jude. And for the incarcerated, maybe we support a prison ministry. And there's all sorts of organizations, right? Samaritan's Purse, Compassion International, Mercy Ships, Children's Hunger Fund, Salvation Army, World Vision. There are no shortages of charity organizations. And is that wrong? No. Like, it's wonderful to give to these organizations. Praise God they exist and praise God that they're there helping. And I really mean that. We absolutely should support these good charity and charitable organizations. Many people have been helped by them, and it makes sense. We get that, right? We're not set up to, to help certain people individually. Some of these organizations, they've already got like the pipeline and the infrastructure already in place. And by giving to them, you empower and enable people who are often in the most need to receive the help they need. So that's great. Praise the Lord for it. But when you read Jesus' words here, you have to be able to see that there is a personal aspect of what Jesus is talking about. There is a personal aspect here. Now, not precluding giving to those charitable organizations. Shouldn't, shouldn't not do that. But there's something about Jesus' words here that I do not think we can get around. He wants us to move personally towards others in need. Personally. He wants our hearts to be in such a way that, that when we see others in need, the first thing we think of is how can, if, maybe, I can personally help this person. Sometimes the answer is no, but sometimes we don't even consider it. Jesus wants us personally to move towards others in need. I mean, imagine if the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan, when they read the story later, now it's a parable, so they weren't a real a Levite and a priest, but just imagine it was for a minute, okay? And they read the story later and they said, hey, that's not cool, you made us look really bad. We gave at the temple, right? Hey, yeah, we passed them by, but you know, we give to Fallen Travelers International for people who get robbed and beaten up on roads. You're making us look bad, right? It's funny, it's silly. Because in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Levite and the priest, who are supposed to know the commandments, walk right by the man lying on the ground, beaten and robbed. And they've got good reason, right? There were all kinds of stipulations in the law about touching a corpse. They didn't know if he was dead. The parable said he was, you know, beaten half to death, right? They've got somewhere to be, and, you know, is he unclean? I don't want to 
And Jesus doesn't seem concerned with any of that. The Samaritan, who's an outsider, if you know the story of the Samaritans, they were ethnically impure when the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom. They sort of intermingled with the tribes in the north, such to the point where they could not trace back their pure Jewish heritage. And they were the Samaritans. They believed in the first five books of Moses, right? First five books of the Old Testament, but nothing after that. And the pure-blooded Jews from the southern kingdom despised them. And so in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees considered Samaritans, they might as well have just been outright pagans. And Jesus highlights the behavior of a Samaritan who, despite all the risks, pulls his donkey over to help this person. The robbers may still have been close by, but he doesn't care about that. He's moved deeply with compassion for this stranger in need. He doesn't care about the risks. Or he's realized that this person's need overrides whatever risks are there. And what I think Jesus is really trying to get at is he is trying to focus in on our willingness or lack of willingness to move past our comfort zone. To move past our comfort zone. And that can often mean exposing yourself to risk. Love is risky. It is. And if you would be completely averse to all risk, you cannot love people. You cannot. Love is risky. It's risky to love a spouse, to love your children when they don't reciprocate. There's all sorts of hurt you open yourself up to. And there is something about the love of God itself that reveals to us that God puts his own heart at risk by loving people who do not love him back or who break his heart with their disobedient and rebellious behavior. And I'm talking about us. The risk of it all and God's willingness to risk his heart to pain. And yes, God feels pain. Yes. God feels hurt and frustration. The scriptures are clear about that. The wrath of God exists because of the love of God. God is wrathful towards people who rebel against him because he loves them. In the same way, we're angry at times at our children when they disobey us because we know what they're doing is going to hurt them. We don't sit back and say, well, you know, run into the street. No, you yell, you grab them by the shoulders. Don't do that again. That's wrath. That's wrath because you love them. It feels risky to throw a homeless person in your car on a cold winter night and drive them through the Burger King drive-thru. And you have to assess the risk. Maybe, you know, I mean, every situation is different, I suppose. You say, well, this person looks threatening. Maybe they don't look threatening. Maybe this person has COVID, maybe they don't, right? There's, there's all sorts of risks. But what I fear is as we back away from all these layers of risk on every level, whether it's someone on a hot day, you know, waiting for a bus, it's 100 degrees outside, and maybe they need a cold bottle of water, or someone who is sleeping, 
in the corner of a parking lot on a freezing night, as we back away from risks, we often back away from compassion and care. It feels risky to take time away from your family to visit the sick in a hospital. It feels risky to part with a warm jacket that you love to give it to the woman at the bus stop. It feels risky to go into a prison and visit an inmate. All those things have a degree of risk to them. But Jesus says, in as much as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. Again, coming back to the charity organizations, they're great. But if we have entirely outsourced our compassion, if we have entirely outsourced our love for others, are we really, are we really obeying Jesus' word? I mean, think about it this way. If someone said, and this is an appropriate time to talk about this because it's Christmas time. It's cold, right? If someone said, I want you to hear me now. If you haven't heard anything I've said so far, let you, perk your ears up to this, okay? If someone said, Jesus is on a bench sleeping downtown. You wouldn't say, well, okay, tell him there's a shelter close by. He should be okay, right? They said, no, 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 it's Jesus himself. <laughs> like, Jesus is on a bench downtown. You wouldn't say, no, you know, listen, I'll make a few phone calls, I'll find out exactly where it is, and, you know, just call him on the local payphone. He can, he can walk there, he'll be fine. No, you'd say, Jesus is cold? Like, Jesus is sleeping on a bench? It's, you know, 20 degrees? Let, you know, you jump in your car, you drive right down there because it's Jesus. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying. In the same way that you would do that for me, and you would. You would do that for Jesus. If you knew Jesus himself was sleeping on a bench in downtown St. Louis, 20 degrees or 15 degrees, you, you know, you jump right in your car. And this is the, the whole point of what Jesus is saying. In the same way you would do that for me, would you do that for a stranger? Jesus wants us to see him, him, in the face of the hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, homeless, sick, and hurting. Or as William Peter Blatty, the author, put it, can we look into the urine-soaked homeless derelict and see staring back at us the Christ of blood, pus, and excrement. We shouldn't forget that at Christmas, we remember that Christ came almost in disguise. Right? I mean, even today, he's identified with his frail and foolish people. The keeper at the inn didn't think, oh, this is the son of God, I better kick someone else out of another room. He thought, eh, yeah, sorry, you can stay in the stable. There's some hay, you can figure it out. <clears throat> There's something of a hidden theological message, of course, in all of this, which is, do we see an opportunity to 
to serve Christ in the least of these. Now, I've gave some examples that probably, you know, sound like I'm being a little judgy or something. And, like, I'm not. I'm just trying to say, like, you know, you have to use your own judgment, right? What I want to push us to do is to think past constantly outsourcing our compassion. It'll look different for each one of us, right? And I admit, I don't know that I would want my wife picking up some stranger at the bus stop at 10 p.m. on a cold winter night. I may say, well, I'll do it. Or maybe I won't do it, I, right? I've got to confront my own heart, which is at times fearful and afraid because we live in a crazy world. So don't hear any of these things as absolute prescriptions that if you don't do, Pastor Jordan is going to. What I'm simply saying, are there things in our community, in our lives, in our world that we would never think of doing that maybe Jesus wants us to? Do you see an opportunity to serve Christ in the people who maybe repulse you or make you afraid or seem alien and strange to you? Totally different worlds from you. Our treatment of the poor and needy is not the ground of God's judgment of us. We are judged righteous by faith alone, through grace alone. But our treatment of the poor and needy tests the genuineness of our faith. Tests the genuineness of our faith. It doesn't earn us salvation, but these works of mercy are evidence for our judgment, not the basis of our judgment. This season, we will all go through the normal routines of buying gifts for people and showing a degree of compassion and love and sort of special care for family and friends. I wonder if there are opportunities we have not yet thought of yet, ways that we can show our compassion, our love, ways that we can see the face of Christ in the least of these. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we recognize that our world is broken and we recognize, oh God, that uh, we are prone to enjoying our blessings in comfort and safety and not sharing them and never risking ourselves to harm, risking ourselves even to discomfort. Father, show us what it might look like to move past our comfort zone, to move towards the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. Father, we pray that even as our vision as a church going into 2022 is to serve our community in greater ways, that you would raise up people with vision here in this congregation to be able to create a connection and a pipeline for us to move past our comfort zone, to serve people in our community personally. Father, touch our hearts with the glory and power and grace of the gospel that our theology would move from our heads to our hearts and into our hands, O oh God. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.